Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to the session podcast Janesville from our 2018 programme, presented with the assistance of an Embassy of the United States of America cultural grant. One of Barack Obama's top reads of 2017, Janesville, an American story, traces the lives of workers and their families and the response of public and private sectors in the wake of General Motors' decision to close its Wisconsin assembly plant in 2008. Written by Pulitzer Prize winning Washington Post journalist Amy Goldstein, the Philadelphia Inquirer said it is essential reading for anyone who wants to understand the economy of the Rust Belt and its implications for America's once proud middle class. The Financial Times McKinsey Book of the Year, Janesville is an intimate human account of post-industrial decline and a meditation on the future of work. Goldstein discusses the telling of the story with Toby Manhire. We hope you enjoy it. No my hi mai and welcome to the Auckland Writers Festival. My name is Toby Manhire and it's a real pleasure to introduce today Amy Goldstein, author of Janesville, an American Story. That's it there. Exhibit A. Um, have you got one too? Look at that. We've got so, a match set. Um, Amy, Amy is a Pulitzer-winning journalist for the Washington Post, which is a um, newspaper in America. It's a bit like the spin-off is in New Zealand. I don't know if you're familiar with that. <laughs> a little, little bit, little bit, little bit bigger in size, and it has a print edition, but otherwise much the same thing. Um, she writes there uh, these days mostly about health policy. Um, Janesville draws on all of that reservoir of knowledge, um, but it's very much a human story, uh, centering on a group of families, which we'll come to talk about, and their response over five years following the 2008 closure of the GM plant in the city. Um, The GM plant had been the economic lungs of the city, providing employment directly and indirectly to many thousands of people. Its closure was a disaster for Janesville, one of sort of many convulsions around America and, and around the world, really, in that, that financial crisis. Um, we'll talk a bit about the American story of Janesville, about the writing of that story, and a bit about the political context. Amy is going to, a bit later on, read us a bit, read us a few pages from the book, and then after that we will throw open uh, to the floor for your questions. Um, after that, everyone will file out and go and buy a copy of this book, and then uh, go to Amy to have it signed. Um, before we kick off, a big thank you to the Embassy of the United States of America, without whom the trip wouldn't have been possible. Um, Amy, hi. Thanks for hi. coming. Um, <laughs> you decided to write a book in part about what had happened, that, that, we were just, that I was just mentioning those convulsions. Why didn't you go, say, somewhere like Detroit, like a big kind of city like that? Why, why was it Janesville? Well, it was about a decade ago that I began thinking about doing some kind of writing about the ground level view of what happens when good work goes away. Mm. Um, I was struck, I was doing a broad social policy beat for my day job at the Washington Post, like your news publication. Um, uh, And I started to get interested in what was happening to people during what we call the Great Recession in the US. Um, And I did a couple of stories, one out of Southwest Florida, which was a real hub of the housing crisis that was happening during this time. And I just hung out for a few days with people who were tumbling out of the middle class onto welfare rolls. So I hung out in a welfare office where people are signing up for benefits, just talking to people about how they happened to be there and hearing people who were just shell-shocked that this had happened to them. And it just struck me, this and a couple of other stories, 
on similar themes that something profoundly different was happening in my country. Um, you know, the whole notion of the American dream, had, dream as an upward trajectory, not a downward trajectory. And I started thinking about the kinds of good journalism that I was seeing done by others mm. during this period. And I sort of became aware that a lot of the writing was from the macro view, you know, the political debates over whether then pretty new President Obama had a good or bad set of economic policies, whether the federal government should or should not be financially rescuing banks and uh, uh, auto uh, companies. And what I realized is that there wasn't much writing about what was really happening to people when good work was going away. So I became kind of um, obsessed with finding a way to tell that story. And to your questions, one of the things, you know, I thought a lot about if I was going to pick one place which I wanted to do, I wanted to write about what this bad time was doing to workers and the texture of a solid community. Um, I wanted to find a place that had never before been part of the Rust Belt um, because I didn't want to be writing about an accumulation of economic decay. So that threw Detroit off the list. Mm. Um, I wanted to write about a place where economic trauma was new. Um, and that was very true of Janesville, Wisconsin. This was not a place that I knew at all. Um, somebody had mentioned it to me when I was doing these few stories for the Post. But I didn't go there at the time because the plant closing had just happened. A lot of the General Motors workers themselves were still getting union benefits. So the pain hadn't really begun to seep in yet. So I think I had been to Wisconsin on one story in my entire career. Mm. Um, but when I began thinking about what would be a kind of place that would be suitable for telling the story, uh, Janesville lingered in my mind. It's kind of, is part of it its name? I mean, it just, it's just, I mean, it's, That's it's a very exactly right. name. You That's exactly Jane right. You know, sometimes I kind of give people a rundown of the criteria that I use, and I end the list by saying, and besides, it's got this great name. Yeah. And if I was going to hang around with a name for several years, I didn't think it was going to be several years. It turned out <laughs> to be. Um, that I loved that it was Janesville. It just had this all-American quality to it. That. So mm -hmm. it's in a couple of weeks. It'll be it'll be a decade. It'll be ten years since yes. that, that announcement, that original announcement that the plant was going to close. Yes. But you didn't go there first until a few years later. Is that right? So you must That's have right. had to kind of somehow collect and accumulate all that information to deliver the story in that first-hand sense? That's exactly right. Um, by the time I figured out a way to take a little leave from my job, um, it was um, the summer of 2011. Mm. And I knew, I mean, I didn't, I'd never written a book before. I wasn't even sure I was going to write a book. I was going to do this thing I was calling The Project because I was a little bit nervous about the word B-O-O-K for a while. Mm. Um, and um, I knew from the outset that whatever I wrote was going to have to start with the announcement by General Motors that this old, old factory was about to be closed. I mean, this factory had started making tractors just after World War I and started making Chevrolets in 1923, Valentine's Day 1923. Um, so I knew that the moment of the announcement would have to be the start of the story. Mm. Um, and I wasn't there. So um, I had to figure out a way to make the story feel seamless through a combination of things that I could be there to see and things that had predated me. Um, so that took a little bit of reporting to uh, figure out how to do that reconstruction. And you must have had to kind of find a group of people who could be your kind of 
spies and your or your yes. your your intel on that. How did you how did you how did you how did you actually find those people? Yeah, so spies and intel are really good ways of describing what I what I got there. Mm. Um, uh, I made um, a first exploratory visit to Janesville, um, July 26, 2011. And I had lined up a few people ahead of time to meet them. I was trying to think about if I want to understand what's happened here, who would have the best eyes and the best perception on what had been going on. So um, somebody had recommended to me an old time journalist mm. um, who was the first person who I met. He had grown up in Janesville. He had worked for the Janesville Gazette, the local paper. Um, he wasn't working for the paper anymore, but he had a daily radio show and was working as an education consultant. And um, I just called him out of the blue and said, you have no idea who I am, but I'm thinking of writing about your town. Can I come talk to you? And he said, sure. Uh, and before I got there, I asked him who else I should meet. So some of the people who turned out to be characters in the books were actually people I met that very first trip. Mm. Um, I met the head of this place called the Job Center, which is kind of ground zero for where people would go when they lost their jobs and didn't know what to do about it. Um, because I figured he had a pretty good vantage point on what had been happening. Um, I met with the, on that first trip also, the leaders of um, the un very strong union town. Um, so it was United Auto Workers of the Union, and the chapter was Local 95. And I met with these two guys who were running the local, who actually were um, retirees from General Motors because there were no workers left to get time off to run the union. So these guys who had been... Uh, running the union in the 90s came back as volunteers in their retirement. So I met with them on that first trip. So there's a few kind of anchors. And on that trip and many more that I made over the first months, I would always say to people, who else should I get to know? Who else should I get to know? And it actually um, was a very slow and inefficient process of figuring out who I wanted to be the main characters, because I felt like I really needed to understand, as I came to think about it, what were the kinds of choices that people made in town when there were no good choices left for work, and then find illustrations of those different kinds of choices. So I met many, many people over a period of a year or so before I began honing in on, like, you might be good. <laughs> And that's such a, I mean, you refer to them now as characters, and I think you mentioned them at the start of the book. You kind of list them almost as a dramatis personae type yeah. thing. And that, that process that you, that you touch on of determining who will be your characters, what are the criteria that come into that decision? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, I use the word characters here, but I think you caught that there's a little oddness to that because these are, you know, real people. They're real named people who are living their lives in this community. And um, I wanted families that had made different choices. I wanted there to be, I wanted the story to feel like a kaleidoscope mm. where you're seeing events unfolding over a five-year chronology that I tell in the story from different people's vantage points. So, like you're turning the kaleidoscope, seeing what it looks like from. So I wanted there to be a few worker families, auto worker families that had to figure out what to do. And I also wanted there to be people around them in different positions in the community who um, were themselves trying to figure out what they thought they should do. So to name a couple of that, Outer Ring, um, there's a social studies teacher uh, at one of the high schools, there are two high schools in town, uh, who began to notice that some of her students who had come from middle class families, she knew, uh, just looked like they weren't faring so well. And 
on her own, she went to the principal and said, can I have a little locked room where I can collect jeans and prom dresses so girls could afford to go to the prom in the spring and um, uh, school supplies and a little bit of food. So she just created this, you know, it started out as a one-woman band, uh, this thing called the Parker Closet, the Parker High School. Um, so she was really trying to connect to these kids and find ways of encourage them to get help without embarrassing them because one of the things I learned quickly is that people who have been middle class and are used to being self-reliant are extremely reluctant to accept help. I mean, that's just not yeah. their sense of themselves. Yeah. Um, there's a banker who's one of the people whose uh, experiences run through the story and she forms, um, she became the co-leader uh, of a new economic development coalition. Um, so she's trying to figure out what to do. Um, the head, as I said, the job center is a character. But in terms of the worker families, um, there are three main ones. One was a family named the Vaughns, and they were a big union family in town. It was um, Dave Vaughn, the retiree, who I met that first day. I was in town, actually, second day, the first trip I made to town. And his son um, had been the um, top union guy at the biggest supplier company to the GM factory. Um, it was a plant that made seats, and there were 800 people um, there, and it was working, it was called just-in-time production. I learned a lot about the auto industry doing this research. Yeah. And um, so the seats were delivered to the assembly plant three hours before they were uh, bolted into the General Motors vehicles. And if you think about that kind of lockstep, uh, you can imagine what happened to the Lear Seating Company the day the GMO mm -hmm. plant closed, it went out as well. Mm -hmm. So um, Mike Vaughn um, begins applying for union jobs. His wife has worked there too, and she's already lost her job. She's back at school. He's trying to figure out what to do. Can't find a job that makes sense to him anywhere in a couple state region. And he begins thinking about what could he transition into if he went back to school that would draw on all the skills he had acquired as a union leader. And this little college, a technical college, that was doing a lot of vocational training for thousands of these factory workers who were suddenly trying to make themselves into students, which is not an easy thing to do, was starting a program in human resources management. And he thought, well, if I can help workers from the union side, I can probably come to help workers from the management side. But it was really a very hard ethical choice that he made. Um, he came to feel okay about it, but there comes a point in the story where he has to tell his dad what he's about to do. And you'll all have to read the book to hear how that conversation went. <laughs> Um, another family, let me just say quickly, um, uh, is the Wopat family, and they're also a multi-generation General Motors family. And um, Marv Wopat, who retires just before the plant closed and is feeling just guilty as sin at his retirement party that his son's about to lose his job. Um, his son, Matt, uh, also goes back to school, but um, kind of realizes partway through that what he's trained to do, which is to be a utility lineman, because those jobs are supposed to come open and pay wasn't too bad, even though not as good as the $28 General Motors wages. He comes to think that he's really not going to get a job in this new field. So he does something that many people in town have been doing if they've been not supplier workers, but GMers themselves. He becomes what people are calling GM gypsies, which is using transfer rights to start working at a plant far away, so he begins commuting, not moving his family, but commuting to a plant in Indiana, which is quite a distance. He does it every week. He began doing it in March of 2010, and he's still doing it. He's got several more years to go. 
until he's eligible for the retirement and the pension that his dad's been getting for several years now. And then the third family um, is the Whitaker family. And I wanted to be sure that one of the families I was writing about had kids who were coming of age, because I was very interested in what does all this portend for the next generation. So Jared Whitaker um, was also a GMer. He had been at the plant just about the same length of time as Matt uh, Wopat. And he decides he's not going to transfer. He just doesn't want to be living away from his family. So he briefly goes back to school, and it just doesn't work out very well for him, which is true of a lot of people. Um, and he just starts grabbing bad pay jobs, and he's just in and out of jobs, and some don't have health benefits for his kids. Um, but he's seldom unemployed. He's just way low jobs. And he's got three kids. Um, his wife's working two part-time jobs, um, both pretty much minimum wage. And um, his daughters were high school seniors when I met them, and they were great kids, um, you know, really bright kids. They were going to college. Um, and when I met them, they were working five part-time jobs between the two of them to help slip a little bit of cash to their parents now and then to pay the bills. And it's interesting on those points of pride that you mentioned earlier, for, for, that becomes a kind of intense dynamic within that family, doesn't it? The, the, the sense of the loss of pride despite working your ass off. That's right. Your kids are sort of supporting you almost. That's right. And these kids were so wise beyond their years because there's one um, scene in the story where the girls um, on a Saturday night go up to their mom and say, we're going to take you grocery shopping. And they stop and get out a little bit of cash from their own checking accounts. Um, and they do it late on a Saturday night figuring that they're not likely to run into neighbors at that time and embarrass their mom. And when they get to the checkout line to pay for the groceries, they just slip their mom, uh, his name is Tammy, um, the cash so she can look like she's paying for the groceries mm. like a mom normally would. So that detail, and you paint that beautifully in the book, how did you get that detail? You went in the supermarket. Obviously. I was not in the supermarket. Yeah. Um, so... I started to get to, I actually met the girls before I met their parents, mm. um, because I had been saying to um, a couple of teachers I had gotten to know, I need to find a family that really used to be middle class, that is really not middle class anymore, mm. that's really done the fall. Mm. And the teachers kept introducing me to kids who didn't quite fit the bill. And then one day a teacher said to me, I found your family. And she introduced me to the Whitaker girls, uh, Alyssa and Kasia. And so we started chatting, and uh, it was probably our second or third conversation that they mentioned this, and my reporter's ear went, oh, that's good. <laughs> um, so, you know, I did this with a lot of the, you know, way of getting vivid detail for the story. You don't, when you first hear something, say, okay, let's stop the action. I want to ask you a thousand questions about this. Um, so I asked them a couple of questions, and then... I spoke with them again and said, can we just talk a little bit more about that? Um, there's probably the quintessential example of that um, is a scene in the story when Matt Wopat is um, leaving for the first time to drive to Indiana. And he really does not want to leave. And he's sitting in his truck um, trying to will himself to back out of his driveway to make this first drive several states away. And uh, it was another one of those examples where he mentioned that he had time leaving, and I just was kind of very matter-of-fact the first time. Well, that's interesting. And then I came back, can we talk a little bit more about that? 
Well, when I was writing a book proposal, my agents wanted me to write these character sketches, these little vignettes, mm. and I thought that was a good one. So I kept calling up Matt. Um, we must have talked 20 times to get the detail, just kind of like piecing together a mosaic. And I, I was so embarrassed after a while that I started saying, I hate to do this to you, but my agents told me I need to find out more. <laughs> blame it on the agent. Yeah, blame it on the agents. Um, one of the things you did, uh, you do in the book is you, they're all their real names, right? You yeah, haven't, all you their haven't, real names, yeah. And that, I mean, thinking, you know, about that Whitaker family, I mean, you might have, you might have been able to persuade the girls to come on board. Was there any tension there? I mean, because, you know, the people's situations change over the course of those years. Right. They're given situations that that's where the drama comes from, the difficulty, the conflict, all that. Was there any, were there any difficult conversations with your characters about them being in the books? Um, I felt very, very um, keenly that I wanted this book to have real names. Mm. Um, I just felt like the whole point of what I was doing was to show up close what happens to real people in my country when good work goes away. And if I started fabricating names, it would lose that granularity, um, that vividness. Um, so as I was getting to know people in town, I mean, I got to know many, many more people than ended up being part of the story between the book covers. Um, uh, anyone who was not comfortable with my using their name, you know, I didn't say, you're out of here, but I didn't, you know, get closer and closer to them. Mm -hmm. um, there was one character um, who I am not going to identify in public, even in this intimate setting where, um, uh, who partway through said that, I'll identify that it was a she, um, that she was not going to be in the book. And, I, and this is after I had interviewed her quite a number of times. And um, I ran around checking with lawyers at this point um, and, you know, editors and trying to figure out both the ethics and legality of this and um, ended up saying to her, you don't have to talk to me anymore, but this has all been, you know, in journalism uh, jargon, it's on the record. I mean, this is all, you're seeing me taking notes, you know I'm writing a book, so I'm not going to not write about you because you're in a use, not useful, I didn't say useful to her, so I'm manipulative, <laughs> but you're in an important place in the community, and I want to show this vantage point. Um, and she eventually came around and granted some more interviews, um, but it was sort of dicey for a while. Yeah. One of the other characters in the book is Paul Ryan. Oh, yeah. Um, who, as most people know, is the, the Speaker of the House, um, which is it the second sort of second most powerful in the, in the administration sort of? Yeah, so thing? in the U.S. government, it's um, president. If something happens to the president, he can't serve as vice president. Mm. And if the vice president can't serve, it's the Speaker of the House representative. So he's... But the vice president's irrelevant for most purposes. I mean, in terms of the raw power. Depends on who the vice president is. Um, yeah, I regret saying that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when I was... President Pence. Um, uh, but when I was, you know, thinking... I didn't give you my whole rundown of criteria for choosing Janesville, but yeah. the political environment there was one of the factors. Um, before I knew anything about this community, um, which actually turns out to be quite a resilient community in terms of trying to figure out its way out of this economic mess, um, I knew that this was an old union town that tends to lean democratic that had this young congressman. I mean, when I started working on this, Paul Ryan, um, it's his hometown. I mean, he says he's fifth generation Janesville. I mean, he's descended from Irish immigrants who became very wealthy mm. getting into the construction trades. 
Um, his own branch of the family was in law. Um, so he's from a professional family in town. Um, so he was not yet the vice presidential candidate. He became a year after I began this work. He certainly wasn't the Speaker of the House. He wasn't even a committee chair in the House of Representatives. Um, but I just thought there might be an interesting tension in this old Union town represented by this very conservative um, guy who had a very clear set of fiscal views that were kind of out of harmony with some of his constituents. I mean, he manages to keep getting reelected um, until he announced several weeks ago he was going to step down from Congress um, because the shape of his congressional district includes much more than his hometown, so there are more Republican parts of his district. But I just thought there might be something interesting to find uh, in that dynamic between the congressman and the constituents. And I began working on this also several months after a very, very conservative um, Republican kind of polarizing guy named Scott Walker was elected governor of Wisconsin. Um, so I thought, well, that might be something interesting to find. I mean, I was just trying to use all of the decades of accumulated reporting judgment that I had to predict where a story might lie in a place that I didn't know. Um, so those are some of the factors I thought about. And in fact, one of the most recent pieces, if not the most recent piece you've written for The Post, is about Paul Ryan's, Paul Ryan's decision to stand down. That's right. Going back to the, like, look around, who can we get to write about Ryan? Amy, it's you. You're yeah. a Paul Ryan correspondent. Yeah, I've got a little uh, extra knowledge. <laughs> um, and what that story was about, I mean, for a long time, um, you know, there's this real kind of Midwestern and Wisconsin culture of respecting niceness, respecting decency. Mm. So there were a lot of people in Janesville who hated Paul Ryan's politics and his fiscal views, um, but thought he's a really decent, hardworking guy. Um, so they sort of liked the man, but didn't like his, uh, his policies. Mm. Um, and that story that I just wrote was pointing out that over the time, the couple of years he's been the House Speaker, it's been sort of harder for people back home to ignore his um, political views because he's, you know, leader of the, one of the leaders of the party nationally. Um, so it's a little more in your face what he stands for. There's an interesting, a really quite powerful scene towards the end of the book, um, which it's not in Janesville, but it, but it, it's a sort of fundraiser. I don't think it's in Janesville, is it? Or is, or is it in the Holiday Inn in Janesville? It's in Janesville, Holiday Express in Janesville. Holiday, yeah. Holiday Express, yeah, very important location in this book. Um, but it, <laughs> a lot of big things in town happen Holiday, in the Holiday Express. Holiday Express in is the posh hotel. Yeah. Is it? Um, <laughs> Uh, and 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 he's speaking, That's and right. he's articulating his American idea. That's right. And which is a kind of uh, it's a, a philosophy or a, a, a policy that says to it's all about supporting people, but stripping the state out of it and doing yeah. it philanthropically and through nonprofits. And at the same time, Bob, who you mentioned, is there. The job center director. Who you mentioned at the start. Yes. And he's seeing it a bit differently. Can you yeah. elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so, um, you know, I just talked about having to reconstruct things that I wasn't there for that predated my arrival. Mm. But going forward, even before I quite knew how the chapters would be laid out, there were things that I thought, I want to see this firsthand. This might be important to see. And this evening was one of those moments. This was the first time that Paul Ryan had given a speech back home after losing, um, uh, this is 2012 presidential election, uh, Mitt Romney, and he lost, obviously, to uh, Obama's re-election. 
And he was giving this speech to um, an annual big dinner of basically the business alliance in town, the Chamber of Commerce in town. I want to see that. It was not a public event, um, so I had to find somebody who um, had an extra ticket that I could buy. I mean, I was very careful not to take things from people. And Bob Borman, the job center director, I mean, I had contacted several of my, as you said, my spies, my you know intel people, said, who among you has a spare ticket? And they were all scrambling to look for a ticket, and Bob mm. called me and said, I've got one for you. So, okay, I'm going to write you a check, and I'm going to be there that night. So this was this evening. And the evening really speaks to what I came to think of and what I describe in the book as sort of these two Janesvilles that diverge over time, in which there are people of sort of the business class, the professional class, who have been harmed some by the bad economy, but their lives haven't been torn apart. And then there are other people who just aren't getting back up again or getting back up, as in the Whitaker family, as a sort of low level of work, making half the income they used to. So Paul Ryan is um, giving this speech that night in this big crowd, I mean, probably a cloud close to this size, I mean, a lot of people, um, who are eating you know, steak and lobster and raspberry, I think it was strawberry mousse and chocolate mousse that was pretty fancy, you know, with hollandaise sauce on the steak, you know not the kind of dinner that the Whitaker girls would be buying at the grocery store for their mm. mom. And he's giving this um, sort of emotional ode to his hometown, to these business leaders um, who really are operating on a we're-going-to-talk-optimistically mode. Mm. Um, the banker in town, her favorite expression becomes um, everybody just needs to become an ambassador of optimism which um, the economic development folks loved and the laid-off auto workers thought was pretty atrocious. Um, so at dinner that night, um, you know, at my place setting, which I paid for, um, there were glasses that were sort of party favors, you know, to take home, and they said, we see the glasses more than half full. So Paul Ryan is giving that kind of a talk about how great his hometown is and how he missed it when he was on the road his president in his vice presidential campaign. And I'm sitting next to Bob, who's working with still these laid-off people or people who aren't making very much money if they're re-employed. And he's kind of whispering to me, this isn't how I see it. It's it, it, one of the realities that he was facing and a lot of people were facing is that whole knock-on effect. You mentioned it a little earlier. There's one, there's one review that I read of the book that described it as being a bit like dominoes with, with each domino being a headstone, which was quite a... Powerful way Pretty of stark it. way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. and there was—I mean, there, there are the obvious things that we can see. So the the, the Learjet factory, and obviously the direct suppliers, but then there are a whole lot of other kind of um, ripple effects. That's like, right, all the way out. So I came to one of the people who I hung out with a lot, um, who is uh, both a person living her life in Janesville and a character in my book, mm. um, is a social studies teacher, uh, is a um, social worker in the school system whose um, niche in the school system was working with homeless kids. And she starts to see that there are more and more um, unaccompanied homeless kids. You know, their parents may have left town going look for work or, you know, developed some kind of social pathology, you know, addiction or drinking just because they were not in good shape economically and were just kind of not knowing what to do. And she's the one who really taught me you know, the phrase that you used, that there were these domino effects, that these people who had very good working-class wages, $28 an hour if you were at GM, above $20 an hour if you were at one of these supplier companies, 
were taking these crummy jobs that the lower working class previously would have had mm. at you know fast food store pumping gas um, or looking at the local working at the local Kmart um, and those were knocking out of work the lower working class people who previously had those jobs. So that was the domino effect. So it's through the eyes of the social worker that I began to understand sort of the multiple effects of people falling downhill from different positions socioeconomically. There's that, there's that really powerful scene at the YWCA again, which, I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's really painful to, is that, it's one where the two women, uh, yeah. one is having to break into, they can't fund this shelter thing anymore. Yeah. Again, I was curious. Kind of, I was going, where did that come from? That detail. I mean, you, you the reporting of it. Yeah. yeah. So um, I had met. I mean, I was getting to know a lot of people in town. I mean, there are a lot of people who I got to know quite well who aren't in the story, but who collectively inform my thinking about what to mm. write. So I had met women who were running the YWCA in town, um, and we were talking. I mean, I spent a couple of days there at one point, just talking about. Um, the struggles of women in the community um, whose husbands had lost work and they may have lost work themselves and, you know, increasing instances of domestic violence, things like that. But so I got to know her a little bit. It was actually the social worker who told me that the YW... So what the social worker was trying to do with another social worker from the next community over was um, create some housing for these unaccompanied homeless teenagers. So social worker doesn't know how to run a nonprofit, but they turn themselves into a nonprofit. It's been a fund, big fundraising effort um, to generate the money to create this housing for these teenagers who didn't have a place to stay. And um, the YWCA had initially said that they would help fund this. And then because donations to the Y were so decimated, they couldn't do it anymore. So it was a social worker who initially told me this. And then I went back to the head of the YWCA uh, and said to her, I understand this happened. Can we talk about this? And she was like, oh, my gosh, that was such a horrible time. And we were both crying and hugging. And so, you know, one of the things that's hard to do, um, I discovered, is figure out where the truth lies. You know, people were being honest with me, I think, for the most part. But people's memories are fallible. So if I wanted to have both, you know, a feel for vividness and precision, but also have some assurance that people's memories resemble the truth, it was often helpful to, as we're talking about now, talk with two different people. And if their memories are converging, then I feel a little more solid writing it. Or sometimes I'd be looking things up in the local paper to make sure I knew when certain events took place, if somebody wasn't sure whether it was this month or that month. It's interesting in the way, the way that you tell the story, and it's very kind of reporter approach. Absolutely. You know, you are, I mean, when, when stories of America, there is, it's, in a way, it's kind of bucking a trend, maybe. I mean, I know it's not the only book that's told in this way or takes this approach. There are several other very good ones, but you're quite careful or even determined not to go into it in any way polemically or in any way tendentiously. And it must be kind of hard in a way because you don't want to strip it of its drama and its no, it was easy. emotion. You know, it was easy. It was easy. It was easy. Um, it was easy in a way, and let me tell you why I did it. I mean, there are several la layers to why I made yeah. that very deliberate decision. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of an article of faith at my newspaper that reporters do not disclose their own political views. 
and um, I didn't want to have written a book and lose a career <laughs> in my newsroom. Um, so for that reason, I wanted to stay pretty politically neutral. Mm. But there were deeper reasons, actually. I mean, that was an important one, but there were deeper reasons. One was that I was much less interested in myself than I was in the people I was meeting. And that means that my own, ta I mean, obviously, my own take on things informs every word in the book. Mm. Um, but I was really interested in trying to show the perceptions of these people who are in different places within the community. Um, so that didn't mean I liked them all or I agreed with them all or I disagreed with them all, but it meant that I wanted to sort of give them a fair portrayal to show how they saw things so that you could see the, among other things, the emerging political conflict within the community. If I was just overriding that, you wouldn't see it with that clarity. We've managed to get um, 36 minutes into the session okay. about um, contemporary America, about the American story, and we haven't mentioned Donald Trump, <laughs> which is kind yeah. of amazing. Um, <laughs> do you find that a relief? <laughs> I think you probably do, Amy. Yeah, actually, you're, you're right. So Donald Trump, um, no, I mean, Donald Trump is everywhere. Every yeah. conversation about America, I mean, I've traveled there a bit recently. It's kind of, it's ubiquitous. Yeah. I mean, you know, the president will always be to some extent, but I think more, more, than, in, more than in my lifetime. Um, and so people are inevitably going to retrofit that book, if you, if you will. They're going to read it backwards as a kind of origin story of Donald Trump, as a story about... Uh, uh, largely white, middle class in America, working class, you might call it, you know, the, 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 the middle America, angry and kind of spasming, and Trump is the response. That's the way lots of people will see that book. But even though there's only two mentions of Donald Trump in the book, by the way. That's right, because most of the story is from 2008 to 2013. Right. It's really in the epilogue that he makes a little appearance. So how do you, but how do you respond, how would you respond to that if I, if I, if I yeah. were to assert that? So let me say a couple of things about that. Um, so I think I'm going to start by bringing you all to the morning after the election of November 2016. Um, because you can, so Wisconsin in that election for the first time since 1984 went to a Republican presidential candidate. I mean, Wisconsin is one of couple of states along with uh, Michigan and Florida that were kind of so-called swing states. And if they had voted, any of them had voted for Hillary Clinton, things would have been different electorally. Um, so I knew that was, I stayed up late watching the returns and um, uh, I knew that Wisconsin had, the night before I knew had voted for, um, for Trump. Um, so I woke up early that next morning and raced to my laptop in my study at home to see how Rock County, which is Janesville's county, had voted. And um, I had been there uh, on election night of 2012 when Ryan was on the ticket to see, hang out the Republicans, seeing their hometown guy losing along with uh, Mitt Romney. Um, and I knew that in 2012, 62% of the county had voted for uh, Barack Obama's re-election. It turned out um, that in 2016, 52% of Rock County voters voted for um, Hillary Clinton. So this was not a Trump voting county. Um, 
And when I looked at the raw numbers, um, the reason for that 10% difference, 62% to 52%, was not because people were flipping to Republican voting. It was because there was a big drop in the Democratic turnout in the county, which is yet another reason, uh, another way in which um, the story of Janesville is sort of microscopic of what was going on nationally. So um, I had to write the epilogue of this book um, a month after the election. I really had to figure out an answer to your question. What does this mean? Mm. Um, because this was not a story of Trump voters. I mean, it was like the union identity, um, the, uh, you know, the democratic politics associated with the union identity um, had outlasted the union jobs so far. So what I came to think is that um, the kind of economic blows that happened in Janesville, you know, people's feeling like the work they thought was going to last forever has been cut out from under them. Um, you know, losing work is a really, really hard experience. People take it very personally. I mean, even when you're, I'll get back to your political question. I'm not entirely dodging. I'm just detouring for a minute. Um, even when you're losing a job when thousands of your neighbors are losing the exact same kind of work at a time that was the worst economic time, both in my country and a lot of countries since the Great Depression in the 1930s, um, people experience losing work very, very personally. Um, screws up your sleep, it screws up your social relationships, screws up marriages. It's just it's not a good thing to be losing work. So to get back to your question, I think that people who've lost this kind of work or other kind of work, who felt that the country was not, you know, the government was not doing right by them. There was no solution in sight. There was no, um, you know, neither party was really um, providing solace or much help. Um, and there was a lot of erosion of trust in Congress. If you look at political polling about Americans' attitudes towards the U.S. Congress for the last seven years, there's been a real deterioration in people having faith in Congress. So I think it was people who had an analogous experience to the experiences of people in Janesville who are from communities that aren't so democratically identified mm. were open to a non-politician coming along saying, I'm a change agent. I'm going to make America great again. I just think there was a sort of reservoir of longing, um, but not in Janesville. In Janesville. I mean, the... the it doesn't come through much in the book. They, the, there doesn't come through a, a lot of anger in a way that I might expect there to yeah. be more of. I mean, was there anger and uh, blame or scapegoating? I mean, there must have been some that's of that. A, that's a good observation. Um, I'm asked that a lot, like, who are people angry at? Yeah. And, um, you know, there's one little scene in the story um, when Matt Wopat, the guy who starts driving to Indiana, um, is deciding that he's going to drop out of school and he's not going to become a lineman and this just isn't going to work out. Um, where he, he recounted to me that he was trying to figure out who to blame. Mm. And he told me, and I, I write this, that he felt like he couldn't blame General Motors. General Motors was, you know, a year from going bankruptcy, which, I mean, from declaring bankruptcy. Um, they were paying, you know, post-job benefits to him for a couple of years. So he just couldn't find himself to be bitter about General Motors having pulled out. He felt like he couldn't be bitter about the federal government because they were paying tuition for him to go back to school. Um, he couldn't blame his wife, who was 
working a part-time job for minimum wage, setting up displays of greeting cards, um, because she was looking for a better job and couldn't find one. And he looked into himself to try to see whether he could have been doing better, and he just he couldn't figure out what he could have done that would have gotten him to a better place than where he was at that moment. So he's just recounting to me, and this is one of those moments, you know, so we're talking about the story and also the the work of reporting the story, mm. where I asked him to repeat this many, many times to make sure I really understood it with clarity. And he's saying he doesn't know who to blame. You know, there were people in town who were angry. It's not that there was no bitterness. Um, but I, what I found was that the dominant, you know, it's sort of, and people sometimes ask me, well, were people in town angry at NAFTA? You know, the changing economic policies, trade policies. Mm. Um, and the people I got to know, sort of, they were so immersed in figuring out their own lives that kind of these macroeconomic, you know, shifts weren't at the level that, I mean, not that they were ignorant people, but it's just they were dealing with their own lives. There was sort of no space um, for that kind of larger anger um, on the part of many of the people, not everybody, but the part of many people I got to know. One of the really interesting findings of the books, you did some, you did some research as well, some data analysis with, yeah. with some with my some inner nerd came local. out. The, 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 the nerd will emerge eventually. <laughs> um, and there was a really interesting finding that you mentioned, the going back to school. Do you want to talk about that? Because I think, I think that it's, it's just a yeah. fascinating sort and of thing. And it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Right? Yeah. yeah. So I was very interested from the outset in this whole notion of job retraining. Um, I mean, I figured that if I was setting out to write a story about what happens when work goes away, that the immediate sequel question was, well, what do, you know, we, I'm saying we, United States, we, you know, we as a government or a set of policies recommend that people do when this happens to them. Mm. And, you know, it was very early on striking to me that, you know, in a political world in which there are very few economic policies that Republicans and Democrats agree on, there's a high degree of consensus around the idea of job retraining. So yet another criterion that I haven't yet admitted to for picking Janesville was that it had this technical college um, right in town um, that was doing vocational training. Um, it had, uh, during a couple of years after these jobs went away, this little bitty college had the biggest increase in enrollment in the century-long history of the entire network of technical colleges around Janesville. So I thought, well, that'd be a good place to look. So in addition to getting to know a lot of the people who were uh, going back to school and instructors and counselors at this little college and people who were running the administrators who were running this college, um, I also did statistical analysis was with a couple of labor economists. Um, and we got a bunch of data from the state of Wisconsin and the college also cooperated. So we could look at who during this period when the recession had begun uh, lost a job and then did or did not go back to school and what became of them a few years afterwards. I mean, not all the way up to now, but to 2011, 2012 was the data that we had. And what we found was that people who had not gone back to school were, a few years later, more likely to be working. If they were working, they were more likely to be working all four seasons of the year. And the degree of drop in pay from before the recession to afterwards was less if you had not gone back to school. And, you know, I've talked to, I mean, the data don't show why that's the case, but I talked to a lot of people who think about these issues of job retraining. 
And I came to think that this is not, you know, an indictment of retraining broadly, but I think it does say that if you're in an environment, you know, geographic environment, which jobs are coming back slowly. I mean, nobody expected the job recovery from this recession to be as slow as it was. It was much slower than previous recessions in the United mm -hmm. States over the previous several decades. That the jobs that, you know, we were talking about Bob Borman, the head of the job center, he ends up feeling very guilty because he was handing out all this tuition money to people, this federal money. Um, and he begins to feel like after a few years, he's kind of put three people through what he calls a double whammy. That, you know, he, people had lost their work, they had turned to his department, encouraged them to go back to school, and they can't all find work. I mean, not that nobody found work, some people did. Um, Mike Vaughn, um, the union guy, does find a job. I mean, he trains, uh, gets a degree in uh, human resources management, just as he planned, and he got a job doing that. He got a job doing that, uh, working the night shift, making half the pay he had made at the seat making factory um, when he started out. And he felt like the luckiest guy in the world because he had found work in his field. He found it in Janesville. He didn't have to leave. Mm. Um, and he's doing a little bit better financially now. But yeah, I've just come to think that job retraining is very situational. It's an amazing thing. I want to get ask you to read quickly. We're, so we've still got time for questions. But briefly, I mean, I should ask because everyone will want to know What's the latest? Well, how is we're coming up to 10 years, oh. two weeks ago? How is well, there's James actually a lot of drama in what's the latest. Um, so for a number of years, this plant um, was the only one in the General Motors Corporation in the status called standby, which was kind of this limbo in which absolutely nothing was happening inside this factory, but it was eligible to be reopened if the market circumstances warranted it. And that fostered a lot of hope among the workers that eventually was going to come back. Um, the union fought very hard to keep it on standby for a couple rounds of uh, contracts between the union and General Motors. Um, in 2015, the last contract that was negotiated between the company and the Union International, the union stopped fighting for it to be on standby. This, permanent, this plant was permanently closed. So um, this was something that the business leadership of the town had been very eager for. They said, like, later for General Motors, we've got to look forward. And the union people were like, don't take away our plant. And the business leadership prevailed. So um, an effort began to find the seller for this property. And um, it's you know enormous piece of property. It's 4.8 million square feet, a really big piece of property. Mm -hmm. And uh, just in December, um, a company based in St. Louis, Missouri, that specializes in buying up distressed industrial land, bought the property from General Motors. And uh, just a couple weeks ago, they began demolition of the plant. And I mean, I find that I never lived in Janesville, and I find that painful. Mm. And um, the company has said that they'll give, um, if people want one, they'll give them a brick from the plant. Will you read us uh, yes. a passage? Yeah. So I'm going to read a little bit of a chapter. Um, that you can see is late in the story. It's called Night Drive, and it's about, um, you know, I talked about Matt Wopat working his weeks um, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. So this is about his drive home with a couple of GM buddies. And um, I'll tell you the secret ahead of time. Yes, I was in the car. <laughs> Come on, get the hell out of here, a guy shouts as he bursts out the door and speed walks across the terracotta-tiled lobby.
barely slowing to slide his ID card through the punch, lock, punch clock. Friday night at the Fort Wayne assembly plant, the end of the work week, the end of second shift, a nine-hour shift today with a lucky hour's overtime. So there's 11.45 p.m. as this guy is shouting, one guy among 1,100 GMers pouring off the factory floor to start the weekend. Amid this horde, Matt Wopat reaches the lobby at 11.47 p.m., wearing a knit cap, a backpack slung over one shoulder. He is not running, but he too is walking very, very fast, a Friday night ritual. He reaches the chilly night air, and a co-worker wishes him a safe drive tonight. He stops for an instant at the 97, at 97 Saturn, which he parks in the same part of the vast lot every Friday, in the middle row under a street lamp, so that he won't have to think about where he's left his car when he returns on Monday. He pulls his duffel from the trunk and continues walking very, very fast over to a nearby 2003 Pontiac Grand Prix, already idling. In the driver's seat is Chris Aldrich. In the back seat, his coach scrunched up between him and the floor is Paul Sheridan. Janesville GM gypsies both. Chris pops the trunk for Matt to toss his duffel inside and slam the trunk shut before he gets in on the passenger side. Matt's door is barely closed when Chris guns the engine and roars off. 280 miles to go. Four hours and 35 minutes speeding just a little for the pretty sure they will not get caught. Matt pulls out his phone, calls Darcy to tell her they are leaving, same as he does every week. When Chris guns the engine, it's 11.54 p.m. in Fort Wayne, except that Matt is not the only one who stays on Janesville time, so the dashboard clock on the Grand Prix says 10.54. Chris started working at Fort Wayne on August 17, 2009, seven months before Matt. Chris will never forget that day, his wife and kids along to help him move, except he doesn't like to say that he has moved, so he says that he stays in Fort Wayne. Anyhow, his family left on Monday morning when he went to the plant for orientation, which was during first shift, so he was back in his new apartment by 3.30 that afternoon, and he sat on a chair from a cheap dinette set they'd just gotten, staring at a wall. Alone, his wife and kids already back in Janesville, one of the worst feelings of his life. That was three and a half years ago. The Grand Prix had 47,000 miles on it. Now it has 134,407. On this night, they are not yet 10 minutes from the plant, about to turn onto Route 114, when Matt says in his quiet way, this is my three-year anniversary. Chris doesn't miss a beat. We aren't going to celebrate that, he shoots back. Matt already had texted Darcy before going to work. Happy anniversary to me, three years. And the reply came back, Has it been three years? Seems a lot longer. Darcy had added a sad-faced emoticon. We've run over time. It's just to say thank you again for a magnificent book and a really engaging thank you. Uh, Amy Goldstein. Thank, thank you. you. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2018 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes and SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.